Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm honored to have you along for the ride. And we're in the fourth week uh, of a series called The Journey to Faith that's all about what it looks like for an adult to make a decision to become a follower of Jesus. And with our time together this morning, what I want to do is answer a question that, honestly, I've been asked more times than I can count by friends who either are investigating Christianity or who are seriously becoming a follower of Jesus. And the question goes like this. Aren't all religions the same? In other words, uh, don't all religions eventually lead to the same place? Aren't they like different paths up the same mountain? And, and, And does it really matter which one you choose as long as you believe it? And those are great questions that people tend to ask. Well, when they sort of pay attention and recognize that the world's major religions really do have a whole lot in common. In fact, years ago, when I was training to be a pastor, I wrote a paper about the similarities between major religions. And honestly, I was amazed at what I discovered. Uh, For example, like midway through my research, I uncovered the fact that there are at least nine versions of the golden rule right? You know the one that Jesus taught his followers where he told them that they should uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? And and as it turns out, you can find versions of this instruction in almost every major world religion. I just want to show you three to kind of give you a sense of of what I mean. The Jewish tradition uh, says it this way. It says, what you hate, do not do to anyone. That that makes sense, right? And then there's the Muslim version, and that reads this way. uh, No one of you is a believer until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. And that's a little clunky. I practiced that 10 times to say that right, so you're welcome, yeah. Uh, And then there's uh, a version that was written down by the Greek philosopher Plato. These are the generations, you know, many generations before Jesus. Plato wrote this. He says, may I do to others as they should do unto me. So you can see there's a lot of similarities, and and that's actually only where the similarities begin. Uh, In fact, in writing this paper, I also read a book called The Abolition of Man. I I read it, so you don't have to. You're welcome. Um, But it was written by a guy named C.S. Lewis, who you have heard of, one of the most uh, influential theologians of the 20th century and the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. What, what? Aslan is on the move, right? And uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote that there are many, many commandments that are common to all world religions. He said that they included things like, uh, well, don't harm others and honor your parents. That's my favorite one. I have four teenagers. Um, and be kind to the elderly and, and don't lie and don't commit adultery and care for the needy and put other people first. You find these in all sorts of different religions. And then C.S. Lewis went on to note that the similarities also included the fact, and I love this when I found it, all religious people, like irregardless of their religious tradition, are predictably inconsistent in following the rules of their faith. Uh Uh-huh. In other words, like in every religion, sect, and cult, people don't always do what they know they're supposed to do. And so consequently, religious people, we tend to struggle with regret from our destructive choices, as well as carry this like fear in the back of our minds and hearts that our moral failures, well, they've left us kind of at odds with the God who made the rules. And then this regret is compounded for religious people by the fact that we recognize that even though theoretically we could do much better going forward, there's no way for us to right our past wrongs. We we can't go back and be a better parent 
to our daughter. I mean, she's out of the house now. And so no matter how many times we've, we've asked her to forgive us, and no matter how much money we give her, we can't go back and change the past. And we can't go back and, and be faithful to our first spouse, regardless of how much guilt or shame we feel from the fact that we made a decision to be unfaithful. And then we can't go back and undo the unethical business deal that left us with a lot of regret. I mean, we've messed up. We've fallen short. And religious people, we, we all do this. And we feel that as a result, maybe we're sideways with the God who made the rules. All that to say, if you think about it, in the end, the question that all religious traditions, again, all the different flavors, they, they all try to answer the same question, and it goes like this. What can people, what can we do about our moral failures? How can we make right what we've done wrong? And as it turns out, in the answer to this question, Christianity stands alone. And I say that because only Jesus offers a final solution to the problems caused by our moral failures. Only Jesus. And, and to show you what I mean with the rest of our time today, I want to explore a few verses from a 2,000-year-old letter that made its way into the New Testament of the Bible. They were written by a pastor named Paul, and the letter was originally addressed to a group of Jewish Christians, so Jewish people who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and their Savior, and they were living in the city of Rome. And fair warning, uh, Paul's words to them are a bit technical, and so what I want to do is move very carefully through them because I really want you to catch what he's saying because honestly, if Paul is right, and I'm convinced that he is, this is the best news in the history of history. So, so Paul begins this section with these incredible words. He writes, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And, and the little Greek word translated condemnation here was originally a legal term. It was used to describe uh, when someone had been tried, convicted, and shipped off to prison. Okay? Uh, they were literally condemned. And so in this verse, Paul basically wrote that if someone is in Christ, no matter their religious background or how many religious rules they've broken, from God's perspective, they're no longer condemned to be forever separated from him. And to be fair, um, you know, their previous religious experience may still condemn them, and their friends may still condemn them. I mean, they may still, still feel condemned. Like on the inside, they may still feel like they need to spend the rest of their life trying to earn their way back into a restored relationship with God. But Paul says, regardless of all of that, once someone is in Christ Jesus, from God's perspective, they are no longer condemned, which, let's be honest, sounds incredible but also raises a great question. I mean, how exactly does someone end up in Christ Jesus? And as he continued, Paul gives us a clue as to how that happens. He says, because through Christ Jesus, and, and check this out, the law of the Spirit who gives life set me free from the law of sin and death. And obviously there is a lot going on here, but stay with me because in this verse, Paul essentially identified two different laws. He called them the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit. And Paul's original audience, again, Jewish Christians would have understood the law of sin and death. They were familiar with that. That was the principle, that is the principle that states that whenever you sin, whenever I sin, something dies, metaphorically or literally. Whenever you harm someone by something that you do or something that you say, 
you wound or even kill your relationship with them. That's the law of sin and death. And if you think about it, you know, it's not just Jewish Christians that understand this to be true. I mean, we kind of do too if we think about it. If we're honest, some of us killed our relationship with our parents by the way we treated them when we were growing up. And now it's decades later, um, but we can only still barely speak to them. We, we sinned, and the relationship, it, it sort of died. And, and others of us um, have had the experience of damaging relationships through deception or through unfaithfulness. But, but I'm telling you, whenever you sin, whenever I sin, something dies. Sin always harms relationships. And and Paul repeatedly argued, not just in this letter to Roman Christians, but in all of his letters, that this same principle that sin damages relationships applies to people's relationship to God. And, And so unfortunately, though, Paul also repeatedly argued that that's not where the story ends. In fact, that's where the story kind of begins because Paul noted that the law of sin and death what's been overcome by a different law. So let me kind of explain, and he called it, again, the law of the Spirit. Let me explain what Paul was saying here by using a a more modern illustration. Paul never would have thought of this, so I'm actually better than Paul. I'm just kidding. I'm just, the illustration is, anyway, here's what it is. Think about this. When you take off in an airplane, Paul never would have thought of that. Thank you, right? Yeah. Gravity doesn't change, (laughs) Right? Gravity is as strong as it's always been, but when you take off in an airplane, there's a different law that's described, point to the nerds, by something called the Bernoulli principle that takes over, and that law overwhelms the law of gravity. So in spite of gravity, you can still fly in an airplane. And in much the same way, Paul wrote that though the law of sin and death will always be in place during this life, He says, through Christ Jesus, a new law has been introduced that overwhelms it. And the good news is that this new law can be leveraged by every single human being who understands that they have fallen short of God's expectations and confesses the need to be rescued from the relational debt caused by their sin with God. And that's what Paul calls the law of the Spirit. Who gives life. And throughout his letters, he described this law in terms of forgiveness and grace. So, Paul, how does this law of the Spirit work? Well, it operates under the currency of forgiveness and grace. And if you think about it, you've probably experienced something like this as well. I mean, some of you have killed relationships through your sin, and you felt so bad about what you did that everything, you did everything you could think to do in attempts to make things right. And you may not have thought about it in these terms, but you tried to keep all sorts of different relational rules in order to try and heal the relationship. But eventually, you became aware of the reality that you can't heal a broken relationship by doing good. That's not how it works. Because the only way back into a relationship with someone you hurt is for them to extend grace and to forgive you. And so Paul used the phrase, the law of the Spirit, to describe the absolutely stunning reality that God has chosen to invite you and to invite me back into a restored relationship with him based on nothing other than his decision to extend forgiveness and grace to you. And and again, the law of sin and death doesn't go away, but the law of the Spirit overwhelms it. The incredible news 
is that the God of creation is not fundamentally angry with you, and he's not fundamentally angry with anyone else. In fact, he desires to extend grace and forgiveness to you and to all people from all faiths and all religions everywhere in the world because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So now as Paul continues to write, um, he, he got to what I think is my favorite part of this entire passage. Here's, here's what he said. Paul wrote, for what the law was powerless to do, God did. And again, Paul was writing to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christian audience about the Jewish law. But if you think about it, what he said applies to every system of religious laws. In this verse, Paul noted that religious rules can't ultimately do anything to restore someone's broken relationship with God. That's not how it worked, and that's not how it works. Instead, Paul wrote that what the law, what law keeping couldn't do, God did. And again, I mean, he didn't do it by sending a bunch of easier rules for us to follow. He did it by doing something dramatically more effective. He wrote, God, Paul wrote, God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of a sinful man to be, and check this out, a sin offering. In other words, Paul wrote that what law keeping was powerless to do, really what religion is powerless to do, any religion, what tradition is powerless to do, God did by sending his son in order to be an offering for your sin and for my sin. See, the incredible news is that God didn't condemn you and he didn't condemn me because of our sin. Instead, and this is right at the heart of what makes Christianity so unique and so incredible, he condemned his son for us because he loves us. And now as Paul continued, he, he noted that God did this, and this is, this is technical but amazing when you see what he's saying here, in order, so he did this in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, not, not partially met, but fully met, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And, and so when Paul wrote the phrase, the righteous requirements of the law here, he's referring to those, the requirement that we live without sinning, like ever, <laughs> The requirement that we would never harm anyone else by what we do or by what we say, that we'd always honor our parents, we'd be kind to the elderly, we'd always be truthful, never commit adultery, always care for the needy, always put others first, 100% of the time. And that's just a few of the righteous requirements of the law. And, and I know what you're thinking, because it's what I was thinking, like it's impossible for you and I to ever fully meet a requirement of perfection, it's impossible. If that's the standard, no one could reach it. But fortunately, we don't have to. Check out this verse again. Paul wrote that God sent Jesus for us in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. In other words, Paul wrote that God is offering you, and he's offering me, a new standing with him, a new peace in relationship through the sacrifice of Jesus. He's actually offering to give you the same righteousness that would be yours if you had kept every single law perfectly for your entire life. And he wants to give that standing to you as a gift. You can't earn it. But honestly, if you think about it, you already knew that. I mean, 
you haven't been able to live up to any religious system you've ever adopted. And I'm not judging you, neither have I. And so God said to us all, I'm going to give you a righteous standing with me, and I'm going to take all the consequences of your sin and all the condemnation that you deserve, and I'm placing it on my son so that I can give you what you don't deserve. And not just you, I'm going to offer this gift to everyone in the world who simply asks for it. I've done everything for you other than coerce you. Because I love you, I will offer and I will allow you to accept the gift. I'm telling you, if you think about it, the fundamental dilemma of all religion is what to do about our failures and our sin. And what makes Christianity so unique, so beautiful, is that God offered his son as our solution. He's not just a prophet. He's the son of God, and he is the solution to our sin. And he promised that if we simply receive him as our savior, the debt from all of our sins, past, present, and future, will be wiped away. And though we may still feel, face consequences for our sins in our human relationships, we can know that we won't face consequences for our sins from God because, again, what the law couldn't do, what law-keeping couldn't do, God did for us by sending his son. And so that's it. I think it's fair to say that religion, like every religion, generally begins by making us aware of three things. They are, we ought to, we don't, and therefore we are at odds with God. And then after making these three points, every religion other than Christianity gives us a list of stuff to start doing and a list of stuff to stop doing in order to attempt to restore our relationship with God. But here's the thing. In every religion other than Christianity, we can never know when we've done enough. We can never know. And so consequently, in every religion other than Christianity, good deeds are often motivated at least subconsciously, out of insecurity and fear because we want to make sure we've done enough, but we never can know if we've done enough. But see, that's not the case with what Jesus offered because according to Paul, the mission and message of Jesus was that what the laws of religion, what law, obeying the laws of religion couldn't do, God did for us by sending his son to be a sacrifice for our sin. And so this is, um, I was thinking about this this week, and this is what this kind of means for you and me. And this is true whether you come from a Baptist background or a Presbyterian background or a Catholic background or a Muslim background or a Hindu background or you profess faith in some Eastern religion. If there's something in you that's still trying to earn God's favor, then you've never accepted the free gift of forgiveness. If there's something in you that like every time you pray, you're still finding yourself saying things like, God, I know I'm not worthy, and God, I, I know I've done these things, but I'm trying hard, I'm trying to be better, and I'm giving more, and I'm serving more. I mean, I'm trying to be such a good law keeper that you would forgive me and accept me. And if that's the kind of thinking that's running through your mind and your heart, I'm telling you, you haven't yet embraced the greatest gift that you'll ever be offered. The gift of absolute forgiveness and right standing with your creator. Because as Paul wrote, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, now if you were with us last week, um, you know that I showed a clip from The Chosen that made me cry. Um, that dramatized the point of that talk. And as it turns out, there's another clip 
that I cannot help but share with you today. We're going to have to start sending them royalties. Um, and if you work for them, thank you for letting us use a clip. Um, the scene I want to show you is one in which Jesus has a conversation with a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus. You saw him in the video last week as well. Nicodemus at this point in the story has become convinced that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. But Nicodemus was concerned that Jesus wasn't doing what he and the other religious leaders thought that the Messiah was supposed to do. He wasn't following their religious rules, and they believed their religious rules are what kept them at peace with God. And in response to his question, Jesus points Nicodemus back to a moment in ancient Israel's history, like shortly after God rescued them from ancient Egypt. And it's a moment where God had instructed his people to simply place their trust in him by doing something that he told them to do in order to be saved from a dangerous situation. And as it turned out, that event, some 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, was a shadow of what Jesus would one day do. So let's watch this clip together. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles. Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin, from spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned. And, and friends, that is what makes Christianity singularly unique among the world's religions because only Christianity was founded on amazing grace. And I, I've been doing this for a long time now, and over the years, um, I've met a whole bunch of people who were raised in churches but who've never personally received the gift of Jesus. I had one friend say to me, it was almost like I got trapped in, in the fog of religion. And you can always tell th these friends because they always seem to carry something in the back of their minds that says, well, the law condemned me, and so maybe if I can be a better law keeper, then the law can save me. But see, that's not how it works. 2,000 years ago, into a world that had never imagined that there could be another way. 
A pastor named Paul wrote that what the law couldn't do, God did by sending Jesus into the world and inviting everyone not to become a better law keeper, but to become someone who is forgiven. And so, so I want to end our time together today by giving you an opportunity, like right here and right now, to acknowledge your need for a Savior. I mean, maybe at some point during the talk, you, you realize that you're still trying to to do something for yourself that God has already done for you. And again, regardless of the tradition in which you were raised, this is for you because this is for everyone. In the end, religion leads us to our need for a savior. And in Jesus, God sent us his savior. The law of sin and death has now been overcome by a new and better law. The law of the spirit, the law of forgiveness and grace has been extended from God who has invited you and everyone to come into a restored relationship with him and begin to call him your heavenly father. And so I, I'd love to you know, just have you bow with me in just a moment. And, and if, this is, if this is your moment to cross the line of faith in Jesus, just simply pray with me in your mind and in your heart. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I believe that what the law could not do, you did. And I believe that through your son, all condemnation has been taken away from me. I believe that on my best day, I'll never be perfect. And I also believe that you are offering me the gift of a right standing with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I place my faith in Jesus' death on the cross, the son of man that was lifted high. And I place my faith in Jesus' crucifixion as the final and total and complete and absolute payment for all of my sins, past, present, and future. I believe that because of Jesus, I don't owe you anything anymore because Jesus paid it all. He died so that I might live with you forever. Please allow that simple truth to, to translate from my head to my heart so that I might live like I'm forgiven and loved by you because I am. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, if you, I mean, if you just prayed that prayer, um, even though you may not feel any different in this moment, from heaven's perspective, Everything has changed. And if you think about it, you're no longer on the journey to faith. You're on the journey of faith. And there is so much more for you to discover. Because everything changes when you realize that you are loved by your creator. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove. Just loved. And we'll pick up the conversation there next week. Uh, but for now, if you're here in the room, why don't you stand? And I'm actually going to double pray today, but that's okay. What are you going to do? I was like, we just, we're going to pray again. It's okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we celebrate your grace. We celebrate your faithfulness. We celebrate your goodness to a people who are not worthy, and that's the point. And I pray that um, the light of your love would shine through us this week, that we might reflect 
your character to our world in a way that others might see something of you in us and might be drawn to that light. For, for this morning, for this moment, we just thank you for Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior. And it is in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.